0: stands adjourned until 6.30 p.m. on Monday, January 10th,
1: 2022. Excellent, excellent choice of the music. Uh, that, was, that was fantastic. That uh, <laughs> that is just such an amazing image, right? So, so last year we, uh, we did a, a live stream um, on um, the Iraq War turning 18 uh in uh in 2021 uh, officially old enough to fight in Iraq uh and of course that gentleman there who uh all of those all of those good uh, good liberal democrats uh were lining up to to shake his hand and you know and 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 embrace him you know literally um who uh, who was that nice old gent who who's that guy
0: I decided to uh, title uh, the video that it was Pelosi hugging Dick Cheney in case people weren't sure, uh, you know, who that uh, old bald white guy is, because that doesn't necessarily narrow it down. But uh, it is about as evil <laughs> as evil as it can get. And I don't even know why optically she would she would do it, unless it just kind of to taunt us like the same way she's taunting <laughs> us, you know, with uh, saying that. You should be able to own his stock, you know, even if there's a conflict of interest in, in Congress.
2: Maybe she got excited and thought that was uh, Christian Bale because she loved <laughs> the
1: movie. <laughs> he's
0: so method that even when the movie's over, you know, it takes time to uh, to get out of character.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I would say that uh, I would say that Nancy isn't worried too much about optics right now. Uh, judging, you know, judging by the pattern, right? I made mean, like like certainly uh, certainly those stock uh, decisions. Uh, I, I don't think that she was sweating a lot about how that was going to be publicly perceived, you know, before she, uh, before she started to, uh, to do it. Like, in a weird way, it actually reminds me of the second Bush administration when they got super duper unpopular and, and there was this real energy running through those last few years. Like, fuck it, whatever. Like, nobody's going to like us whatever we do. We're just We're just going to do stuff. <laughs>
0: yeah it's that like badass boss energy that she's got you know she's like i'm 94 uh like yeah she's, you
1: know. she's on she's on her way out she knows the democrats are going to get creamed in the midterms you know and 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 either she just doesn't give a shit or she just doesn't think there's anything they can they can do to uh to stop it or you know maybe a little from column a and a little from column b uh but uh one way or the other she's not worried about it I mean, like yeah 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 I mean, who's she pandering to huggy Dick Cheney? Right? Where where's what's the sector of the electorate that loves Dick Cheney? I mean, like, like that's I mean, if, if anybody who's noticed what's gone on for, you know, the last um, you know, several years uh of of American politics, uh the you know, the Republican base has, you know, largely become a a cult of Donald Trump, right? I mean that that's you know, like, rhetorically, at least, everybody in the Republican Party feels the need to to ape what he says and, and to do their weird imitations of him. Everybody, right? Like, Ted Cruz, who Donald Trump literally said, uh, he insulted his wife several times in the primaries. Uh, he said on the day that he clinched the Republican nomination that Ted Cruz's dad was involved in the JFK assassination. Uh, Ted Cruz, you know, is is like constantly tries to prove how he's a Donald Trump Republican. You know, Lindsey Graham, who, who Trump literally <laughs> held up his phone at a rally, you know, at a rally and read off Lindsey Graham's phone number. Uh, that's the thing that happened uh, to uh, to burn him. Uh, Lindsey Graham, you know, does does the same thing. You know, and and you know, this is how you get. You know, I was talking about this on the Colin show last night. Um, you know, this is how you get people like you know, Charlie Kirk, who uh, who were just straight down the line Tea Party guys. And, you know, they haven't actually changed any of their policy positions. Uh, but, like, they they say they're populist now. And, you know, they're conservative populists like Trump. And at least part of what that means, I mean, again, much like the economic populism, it's kind of all bullshit. Like, you know, Trump doubled the rate of drone strikes in Yemen. But, like, rhetorically, a big part of what it means is that they're rejecting like the neocons who who ran the Republican party before, you know, that, you know, putting America first, you know, all that stuff. Right. I mean, that, that was all about, uh, again, at least rhetorically, you know, going into this more uh, <laughs> uh, isolationist uh, kind of, uh, kind of posture. Uh, so those people, you know, there's not a lot of love for Dick Cheney there. Uh, you know, that's, I don't see a lot of like Republicans going around proclaiming their love for Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld in the Iraq war, you know, in Republican primaries, you know, to to appeal to those voters. So it's not that. I mean, is it is it that like that many grassroots Democrats love Dick Cheney now? I mean, I, maybe that's a that'd be an incredibly depressing thought, but I don't really think so, right? I I, I think, uh, you know, I think just about like, you know, I mean any any Democratic voter who who has a memory that that goes back to you know before you know before two thousand eight certainly. Like, remembers how much of their political identity was about hating this guy. <laughs> like, you know, the, uh, you know, like, like they there was like constant jokes about how, like, the the Darth Vader theme, you know, the stormtrooper march, whatever, you know, would go and you know, when he passed by, he was widely blamed for the Iraq war because the thinking was that uh, George W. Bush was, like, you know, right above the level of like chasing a laser pointer beam around the floor, right? I mean, like, that, that's that, like, you know, he wasn't originating a lot of ideas, you know, for what the Bush administration uh, should uh, should do, you know, so he was widely blamed for that. And, you know, Democrats hated him for it correctly, as you should. You should hate Dick Cheney for this. I mean, this is like he he worked so hard to make sure the United States invaded Iraq, which like, you know, when I was doing that uh, Rumsfeld bit for for Jacobin, you um, over, you know, my my brother was in town, you know, for the holidays, he, you know, I told him I'd just read some other article for Jacobin and he did, you know, he was joking about how, you know, like the Ben Burgess article generator, right? You know, what, what is it, right? Because it's either nationalized fill in the blank or um, such and such person who just died was actually horrible. Uh, but uh, the, uh, but like, you know, so look this up for the rumsfield a little bit. And just between the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and the time when, you know, the year that Rumsfeld stepped down as Secretary of Defense, 2006, there like, according to this super prestigious medical journal, you know, did study, The Lancet, uh, there were 600,000 and change extra deaths in Iraq beyond who would be, you know, how many people would have been expected to die, you know, in that, you know, in that time period. So I mean, like, if that's not evil, I don't know what is. And man, they are just—they just like lining up to like, oh my God, this—you know you see, it's—it's it's, you know, it's Dick Cheney. You know, it's like he's the like he's getting out of the limo with the red carpet.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's—I uh, mean, the funny thing is, right, is that Dick Cheney was always kind of like the evil guy behind the scenes to prop up the affable Bush, which is like in a disgusting way has even worked to this day, right? And that like when people yearn for Bush, they're not really yearning maybe for any of his policies, but the yearning for, like, his, like, you know, Joe Schmo persona. But then, so, but what's funny is that he, you know, he was always supposed to be, like, the evil guy behind the scenes, and yet, like, she still has no qualms about being seen with him. Like, it's one thing to to play at this part of unity with Bush, but this, you know, it's not even the charade of of of, of unity with Cheney is, is, is completely meaningless, as, as you said. So, it, it, it must be just about a personal... Uh, love for for the man over any kind of uh political gamesmanship
2: i think it's a bit of what, what uh, people call west wing brain like, like they're
1: obsessed with the idea of like order and like like who the, these people are like celebrities to them you know doesn't matter he played for the other team you know D- dude was vice president so you know let's let's get a selfie with him um you know yeah yeah, right. At the very, very least, right. Like, let's let's accept for the sake of argument that Nancy Pelosi doesn't love Dick Cheney. You know, like, um, although God knows what's going on in her head, but like, um, at the very least, right? Like, it's incredible level of indifference to uh, to what um, you know to what shady shady did, right? You know that it's like, you know, I mean, it's 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 like doing the equivalent of like. I don't know. I mean, like if I were, you know, um, you know, like like you're on like a panel with somebody and like you disagree on the panel, but then like you go get dinner together or something like that. Right. Like it's it's like the equivalent of that, except like except the analog for like having a disagreement on a, on a panel on a talk show is you killed 600,000 people in Iraq.
0: Well you you and Charlie Kirk are, are like pals, right? Like you, you're yeah, always yeah, like yeah. Yeah. you're like, yo, me and Charlie, you know, we're we're at the we're at the sports bar, you know, come come join us, you know, we're laughing about the last debate.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Uh you know, it is funny you mentioned that. Uh last time I looked, uh not that very long ago, so maybe this has changed, but if you go to the TPUSA YouTube channel and they still have the playlist up, you know, the debate night with Charlie Kirk. That was the show you know, that I was on. Um, and I was episode three and that was aired in mid October. That does not seem to have been an episode four. make of that what you will.
0: I'm going to get my tinfoil hat. <laughs> <laughs> All right,
1: guys, I'll see you right after and we'll do uh Jake's uh, labor segment. But right now let's bring on Scott Horton. Hey, how's it going? Good. Uh, so uh this is this is something I was excited about uh to to have you on i should say uh that um that Dave Smith um put me in touch with you like a year ago or something uh and, and it kind of fi- fell through fell through the cracks you know entirely my fault like i I'll, I'll get stuff to read or look at and it'll you know it'll get lost in the pile but I understand then I saw, yeah yeah sure uh, you know so then but then I remember that when, late last year, you debated Bill Kristol. So, so set this up for us a little bit. Uh, who, who, is, who is this guy? Well, um, he's Irving Kristol's son.
3: So that means actually that, uh, in a way, unique among the neoconservatives, he was actually never a Trotskyite or even, I don't think, a Democrat. I think his father had already moved to the right. Before you know Bill Crystal was you know came of age, and so I think he adopted his father's politics, Mm -hmm. so he's Mm -hmm. a second generation neocon, but still, I mean, the the first, second, and even third generation neocons almost all of them, virtually all of them, you know, essentially by definition, were leftists uh, at least Cold War Democrats, but many of them were members of the Trotskyite left before moving right, and so. But like you don't count John Bolton. He's just a fellow traveler, but he's a lifelong conservative, you know, kind of a Barry Goldwater right wing nationalist type. Mm. And so he doesn't count as a neocon. He's just friends with them. So Bill Kristol, in a way, is not actually a neocon, right? He's the son of a neocon, but he was always just a conservative, but a very, you know, to a to a traditional right winger, he is very much a center right rhino kind of squishy um, you know, like Nixon, these the neocons—they have kind of a hard uh, reputation as right wingers, but in fact, they're very much for the regulatory state and the welfare state, and kind of, you know, big government interventionism in the economy and those kinds of things. Yeah, I, I not... mean,
1: so, so so I think a lot of these a lot of these guys uh, you know, are certainly not hardcore against any of that stuff. I mean, they, they seem to have liked the you know various Reagan and Bush administrations uh, just just fine. Uh, you know, that like, uh, they, they weren't, uh, so, I mean, that kind of level of, you know, of, you know, maybe, you know, like, like, I don't know that any of them were, were outraged about like tax cuts or deregulation under any of those administrations, but it's, it's not really where they live. Right. Like that's, that's not right. what they primarily care
3: well, Yeah. Of course the libertarians by the end of Ronald Reagan, you know, Murray Rothbard, you know, declared his presidency an absolute failure and wrote, uh, Ronald Reagan, an autopsy. About just how horrible it was, the big government had done nothing but grow for eight years under Reagan, along with the national debt and all the rest of it. So there was some deregulation, but of course, as I'm sure you know, most of the big dereg- deregulation of the Reagan years was actually done by Jimmy Carter before Ronald Reagan ever got there.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 certainly true. So, so yeah, depending he, on how you still, f- how you feel about that, you know? Yeah, you reputations should,
3: should, should are one thing, but the details are something different, you know. But anyway, the neocons essentially they went from, I mean, look, we're talking about guys who. Um, you know, they essentially they moved right because they sided with America in the Cold War because one, they were Americans, not Russians. Right. And two, they were trots. And so they hated the Stalinists. And so they hated the Soviet Union. And um, then the American left, you know, was had been dominated, of course, by the Truman Democrats and and, you know, Cold Warrior Hawks. But then during Vietnam, the new left came and was very much, you know, anti-war and anti-interventionism abroad. And I don't really know all the details of this, but certainly Mm -hmm. from the neocons point of view, which matters, the new left was either silent or took the Palestinian side in the 67 Mm -hmm. war, or at least, you know, failed to Mm -hmm. fully get Mm -hmm. behind Israel in the 67 war. And so you know, that combined with civil rights, I'm sure you probably know of Norman Podhoritz's essay, My Negro Problem and Ours, mm-hmm. about, you know, essentially, the last thing we want is civil rights for blacks because then they're going to beat us up more, or whatever, I guess, was Norman Podhoretz's personal problem. You know, Thaddeus yeah. Russell has this whole theory about Norman Podhoretz. You know, I mean, you read that. What he's saying is, like, if you're a nerdy Jewish kid growing up in New York, and the blacks are beating you up all the time on the way home from school, well, then they're not oppressed. They're the oppressors, and you're the oppressed one, you know? And then so then he trans kind of posed that onto the Israelis. And so the Israelis are just a nice little Jewish boy trying to get home from school, to do his homework, getting beat up by the mean black kids from the wrong side yeah. of the tracks or whatever, who are the Palestinians. And kind of, you know, this is sort of his take what he learned about Israel Palestine <laughs> growing up in the hood in New York, um, and so that metaphor, um, yeah, yeah. So, so the new left was soft on blacks and soft on Vietnam, and so mm. the neocons moved right. And you know, by the Reagan years, they, you know, essentially were avowedly right wing and joined the Republican Party. Almost mm. all of them. Richard Pearl, I believe, is still a card carrying Democrat to this day. They say but yeah, john, um uh, even when he worked for Reagan, and he was still a democrat i think
1: but, yeah norman norman Pett-Horitz also has a has a son who's uh who's john patterson's politics right, right? that's yeah.
3: right from commentary magazine who's also yeah. absolutely horrible right and who i think also it's a great point right is we call him a neocon but he kind of isn't cuz his dad had already moved to the right kind of and, yeah, and he inherited yeah. his dad's exact same politics after he became a yeah, right winger
1: yeah right yeah, so like a neocon proper yeah, I mean I think Norman Podhoritz, I don't think was ever a trot. He was certainly like a left liberal. Uh oh, he the, was uh, a trot.
3: No, no, no. Norman Podhoritz was, I think, for, was? for not a very long time, but he and Crystal both were.
1: Okay. Yeah. yeah. Must have been pretty brief, because I think because when he was originally editor of commentary, uh it was still like a pretty left liberal magazine, you know, but he certainly wasn't like a, you know, socialist at that at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I but but I think um yeah, so like like we mean two different things by Dukon, right? So one is somebody who's you know literally a D.O., you know, is a new conservative. You know, they 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 started off right. as some kind of at least New Deal liberal, maybe a Trotskyist or Stalinist or whatever. You know, a different variation, and they um, and then they they moved to the right. You know, they bec- they became uh, conservatives, and you know, and I I I don't know. I do think that some of these people on the you know the welfare state and the regulatory state have what are from my perspective, worse, or maybe from your perspective, better, uh, you know, politics than, uh, that, that you're portrayed as having, but, uh, but regardless, right. Certainly what their, their sort of core thing is wanting, uh, this kind of aggressive, uh, foreign policy that, uh, that they mm-hmm. had,
3: uh, um, you know, uh, Andrew Coburn mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. great Coburn mm-hmm. brothers, um, he wrote, and I think that this is really right. There's really a lot to mm-hmm. this. That essentially, the new right, which is the military industrial complex, the cowboy side of the mm-hmm. Yankee cowboy alliance, yeah. Um, that essentially the uh Rockefellers and the you know the oil guys and the bankers they already had the council on foreign relations and their kind of own foreign policy establishment, but mm-hmm. Lockheed and Northrop Grumman and you know Bell Helicopter and whoever, all these guys from Texas and Colorado and California and Washington State, you know, Boeing, all these massive companies. They didn't really have their own Mm -hmm. eggheads. And so they made their alliance with the Israel lobby. And that's Mm -hmm. who the neoconservatives really are, is they're Israel's fifth column in the United States of America. And they've made, they're they're the cross between the Likud party's, you know, vanguard edge of uh, attempted control over American foreign policy apparatus with the cowboys who don't know how to write up studies of their own to justify all the products that they need to sell and that they really made this alliance in the late 1970s. And then as you know, as they came into the Reagan administration and you know, something, a very typical illustration of this, and this leads right back Mm -hmm. to bill crystal, of course is uh, Bruce Jackson, who was an executive (laughs) vice president at Lockheed. And there's this wonderful article by a guy named Richard Cummings called Lockheed stock and two Mm -hmm. smoking barrels. Mm -hmm. And he showed where, virtually all of the name brand neocons who were actually in the w bush government so hadley robert joseph scooter libby uh john Hanna, and um uh, and abram shulsky uh, uh richard pearl paul wolfowitz douglas fyfe and just the whole crew of these guys david wormser mm-hmm. all of them were tied to lockheed all mm-hmm. of them had served as, you know, on an advisory board or another. Lynn Cheney had served on the board of directors, the vice Mm -hmm. president's wife. Um, Hadley on the National Security Council, the deputy national security advisor had been a lawyer for a firm that represented Lockheed in the past. And all these guys were very closely tied with Lockheed. And this guy, Bruce Jackson, had financed the Committee for NATO Expansion, which was later renamed the Committee for... Uh I I'm sorry, I forgot they renamed it. The the Committee for the NATO alliance, I'm so very close yeah, to that. Yeah. and then also founded the Committee for the Liberation of Iraq, which uh-huh. focused not on the weapons of mass destruction as much as on the humanitarian mm-hmm. supposed concerns about the Saddam regime, and had just and spent millions and millions of dollars promoting these men and promoting their policies. Which were completely congruent, not with the interests of the American people at large in any sense, but with yeah. the interests of the the shareholders in Lockheed Martin.
1: Yeah, uh, so so I want to um fo- hold in on that last point, right? So because because say it earlier, right? We sort of mean two things by neoconservative. One is the sort of original meaning, that's sort of the literal meaning, and another is like people who agree with those guys more or less. Uh, right.
3: I try to not to use it too loosely because it yeah.
1: I'm really a, a, a
3: student of Jim Loeb on this. And mm-hmm. I really started learning from him right in 2003, 2004. He is really the greatest, um, you know, of all the neoconservative chroniclers, I believe. And, you know, he has this great article called All in the Neocon Family. And it's essentially about how like you could fill a Thanksgiving dinner table. With the neoconservative movement, and they're all the brother-in-law of Mitch Decker somehow. Or <laughs> like they are all—all all these people are all very closely related to each other. Um, you yeah. know the Abramses and the Crystalses are all in-laws and this kinds of thing. So, yeah, so, so, so
1: I wanted to focus in on what you said about the committee to uh, to liberate Iraq. You know, yeah. you their, you know, their big focus, uh, you know, was on um, on the the humanitarian aspect of the right. uh, the, the case. Uh, for for invading you know Iraq, and we all know how good the humanitarian consequences of that were. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the you know, but but I think that that really gets to something that you, um, you know you you say, uh, you know that you you pointed out in this this debate with uh, you know with Bill Crystal. Uh, Jake, I think we have this. This is this the clip number two, the neoconservative doctrine.
3: That in neoconservative doctrine, democracy absolutely must be spread to Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Libya, and Syria, but not Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Qatar, Kuwait, UAE, Oman, Egypt, or Pakistan. And if there's a democratically elected government that our government doesn't like, the US won't hesitate to try to overthrow it. Like in Algeria in 1993, Gaza in 2007, Egypt in 2013, and Ukraine in 2004 and 2014. (laughs) got you there buddy
1: yeah right uh and and i mean like i i think it's a sign of exactly how often this happens that i you know maybe some of these were in there and i just missed them but i mean i think there are even some notable examples you know for the last couple decades that were that were left out right of of attempted or successful you know coups against democratically elected governments uh that the, the the united states Uh, you know, supported, uh, you know... Yeah,
3: I I actually think that clip goes on and I say, you know, they overthrew the government in Honduras Mm -hmm. or they supported the coup in Honduras in 2009 and in Bolivia in 2018. So, or or maybe I might've mentioned them at a a different time in the same No, I I remember
1: you did talk about Honduras at some point. So it it comes Uh,
3: up later, but yeah, no, you're right. That was not meant to be a complete list. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I mean, to be fair, it'd be hard to, you know, to... You know, Trevor the in the moment, uh, but yeah, like, yeah, Honduras, uh, which, uh, which is a fun case because, uh, you know, in, in terms of installing death squad, uh, regimes, you know, uh, is because Hillary Clinton in her, uh, in her memoir in the, uh, in the first mm-hmm. edition, uh, she uh, right. she brags, <laughs> brags about her role, in and security. then took it
3: out for the paperback, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> yes. yep. Yeah. And which, By the way, you know, I was I was recently a guest on um, Kennedy Nation. I now have kind of a regular guest spot on the Kennedy show there on Fox Business Channel. And we we're talking about the immigration crisis at the border. And I was explaining how this was all Hillary Clinton's fault because she put these, you know, right wing businessmen mm-hmm. in charge who made a deal with the drug lords who ran all these peasants off their property. And, you know, they all went to essentially the slums and all this violence broke out and all these things. And that's why these people are now traveling to our border right now that's who this giant caravan is and you know when you're doing those shows you can't see the other people at all you're just looking into the camera but so that night i got home and watched it and when i was saying that's who these people are they're hondurans fleeing the aftermath of the american supported coup there the republican was going huh and he didn't even realize that the people in the caravan were hondurans at all he just thought they were Mexicans. What's a Honduran, you know? I don't know. He didn't know it, but that was the truth. That was who they were, and that was what they were fleeing from. And it's like, yes, it's true. We're talking about the consequences of a thing that happened a dozen years ago. So maybe you don't remember that, but some of us do. And this is the aftermath of that. But, you know, yeah. being a Republican consultant means never having to know the history of anything, you know? Just build the wall higher. That's all you need to know, you know?
1: <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, no, I mean, like, and, and certainly... uh You know, there was a, you know, attempted coup, at least, that was openly supported by the U.S. and Venezuela in 2002. Uh, George W. Bush actually sent Marines to remove uh, Aristide as as the democratically elected president of Haiti in in 2004. Uh, I can't keep
3: track of the Haiti ones. I'd have to stop and go back and read a couple of books about that or something. There's always a regime change or another in Haiti. You know, Mm -hmm. there was just an assassination attempt against a guy there the other day, the (laughs) current leader. And I was joking on Twitter about I don't know if this is the CIA killing a guy or some guys trying to kill the CIA's guy or both. <laughs>
1: Something's no, going on. No, no. I mean, it, it could it could be right. I mean, I, I was having lived in Miami for six and a half years. I was very very unsurprised that the uh, that people involved in it, you know, were were uh, were based there. I saw the guy, um, uh, the Age of Napoleon podcast host uh the uh discourse lover on twitter you know had uh, like this joke about how you know it must be a big problem at the miami airport hilton you know when like the you know the committee for national salvation of haiti you know as has, has double booked the ballroom with you know with right. the committee for free cuba you know like that's a, you know like.
3: so back to bill crystal this guy bruce jackson from lockheed mm-hmm. gate bill crystal a ton of money he helped bankroll the project for a new american century he helped bankroll the weekly standard where they wrote the propaganda that i'm sure you know dick cheney had you know hundreds of copies of the weekly standard delivered to every republican in the, you know every part of the white house and every republican on capitol hill and all their staff just inundated them with this propaganda where they pushed the lies that led to war more than any other place or as much as any other place and bill crystal oh. for people who are too young to remember i mean I've always, I, this whole last 20 years, I've lived 2002 over and over and over again. Now I'm doing it again, only now it's the 20th anniversary of 2002. Uh, of You know, the year of BS, of them lying us into war with Iraq. For a year and a half straight, they did it. Uh, they lied. And yeah,
1: um, yeah, there was actually a point of this debate where Bill Crystal sort, sort of he says... He was the way, kingpin. But he says, it would not be this debate, but we don't even have this clue. Like He says something like, well... I guess now that we know there are no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, I don't know. Maybe we maybe we shouldn't have done that one as if this were like a sincerely held belief of all of these Bush administration right. ghouls and they had some great evidence that just later turned out to be misleading.
3: Oh yeah, I mean, come on. It was clearly the agenda was regime change and weapons were the excuse. And he knows that and everybody knows that. Um, and I was just reading this great article from Justin Raimondo from uh, 20 years ago. I'm going to try to make this a hashtag all year long where I can remember. And I'm, I'm tweeting out Ramondo 20 years ago and some of this just absolutely brilliant stuff that he was writing back then. And this one is from, uh, I guess, it's the end of March of 2002. Mm-hmm. And it's called Our Hijacked Foreign Policy. Neocons take Washington. Baghdad is next. Now, at the time when I first read that, I didn't even know what a neocon was. I thought we were talking about the Republicans. What's a neocon? Oh, this weird little sect of Likudinics who, you know, seized the Pentagon. Uh, who knew that? The only person who would talk about that at all on TV was Chris, was Chris Matthews. He was the only one who understood it. And he certainly would not really get into it and explain it in a way that his audience deserved to know who these men are and what they're up to, you know. But anyway, in that article... The first little subline is the axis of crystal. And it's about how Bill crystal is the ringleader of this. If Dick Cheney is the ringleader of this inside the Bush government, then Bill crystal is the ringleader of this in the think tanks and in publishing and in dominating TV news and in, you know, making sure that all of the same people are, you know, all of the worst people are all on the same page and pushing the same talking points in the echo chamber and all of that. He was the ringleader more than any other person in terms of, you know, putting together essentially the group. Uh, it's not like these, you know, they are all individuals. It's not like they're, mm-hmm. you know, every neocon is all on the same page. But they are when Bill Crystal comes with his lasso and he gets them and says, we are all going to AEI and we are all repeating what Ahmed Chalabi said. And we are mm-hmm. all saying that this is going to work and we're going to do it like this and we're going to say it like that. And he was. You know, Dick Cheney had his men on the inside and Bill Crystal ran the show on the outside. He is more responsible than any other man outside of government for lying us into Iraq War Two. Um, Justin called him the little Lenin of the neoconservative movement. Forget Trotsky. This guy wants to overthrow the whole world. You know?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that the uh, to to give the Trotskyists their due, you know, that, uh, you know, they they. Uh, you know, that it's certainly a political movement with flaws that could be annoyed. But I mean, I think that they, they did at least have this, this stance, you know, the actual Trotskyist that's like, okay, the, you know, the Soviet union is bad, but the U S is also bad, you know, and, and, uh, and, and we don't have to sort of choose atrocities. Uh that, you know, well, like, that's, you know, I,
3: that's why these guys were ex trotskyists yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. yeah. They exactly. wanted to commit atrocities and they needed some excuses. Yeah, and yeah. Look, you know, I, The pedigree with Trotskyism is not really that important. Sometimes they say that, oh, see, permanent revolution. The Trotskyites want permanent revolution, Mm -hmm. and the neocons kind of inherited that from them. And I think that's kind of right in the sense that they really aren't conservatives, right? They are radicals. They always were radicals. They moved from the left to the right, but they never really became conservatives. And the right and conservatism are not always necessarily synonyms in in every important way. And there's a great interview with Michael Ledeen, Where he says, why do they call us neoconservatives? I don't know. I want to overthrow the whole world. I'm a radical, man. I want to, I wanna, I'm not, I don't want to yeah. stop seeing regime changes in my lifetime. I want America to spread democracy to every last state on the planet. So there is a bit of that. Although, you know, he's another one that's kind of a weird bird, right? Michael Ledeen? He's certainly mm-hmm. a fanatic, but I'm sure I don't think his I, I I guess I should say his left-wing credentials are pretty suspect.
1: Yeah, so so I think that it's an interesting case, Ladine. you know, for 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 the radicalism claim, because of course, in a sense, right, I mean, there are all these governments he wants to overthrow but with the US, right? But like in a different sense, right? I mean, it's 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 the sort of most raw, like the the famous quote from Ladine, right? The Ladine doctrine, uh that, you know, once every ten years or so the United States should should pick some was it small, crappy little country and throw it up against the wall just to show the world who's boss. That's right. Uh, is, is the kind of rawest possible expression of of like uh, hierarchy and 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 like I mean that what, what, yeah, like, kinda, like, like, like know, in in, is, a weird, in a weird way it sounds like something that like a like a, a you know like a Tory might have said at the height of the British Empire.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I'm not saying he ain't a hypocrite or anything, but I think in his own mind he's Luke Skywalker taking on the Empire, right? Every, I mean, who could argue that? Iran is a the epitome of what liberal society should be in the world, right? And who would argue that Bhutan is exactly, you know, that's how human society should be organized, the way sure. they do it. So nobody has it as good as us, so they're not doing it right and it's just terrible that we, you know, the idea that we would refuse to help them when they need our help. It's so easy to frame Intervention in that way that we have so much power to do good. In fact, think of Samantha Power for example is the perfect example of this on the Democratic side, where she didn't have to move right. She's just a humanitarian interventionist. She always was a liberal Democrat, and she was a reporter. She saw a bunch of horror show go on in the Balkans, and said America should have done more sooner. They should have done this on this date, and they didn't. And because they didn't, this bad thing happened, and so. It's the problem from hell. What are we going to do about how here we sit in North America with mm-hmm. unlimited power while absolute atrocities are breaking out all over the world? And we're going to really sit on our hands and cluck our tongues and do nothing. We've got to go and save them. And the thing is, you and I know that Samantha Power is very interested in Samantha Power. Samantha mm-hmm. Power wants a promotion, she wants attention. She's tired of doing these do-gooder, rinky-dink jobs like help Iraqi Christians. That's a quote from Michael Hastings' great article in The Rolling Stone about the war in Libya. She wanted attention from the president. She wanted a promotion. She wanted to move up in the foreign policy community. Turns out that a great way to do that would be to start a war in the name of humanitarianism, which happens to be the thing that she believed in and wrote a book about and, you know, had defined her identity around it. I mean, even when critics asked her about Libya, she goes, "Look, what were we supposed to do? Be able to see the future and stuff? Like, sorry, it didn't work out."
1: But shrug. Yeah, yeah. What she what, 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 what possible that. could there be that would tell her, yeah. you know, that this would that's this would right? Go Look, well. but she meant well. She meant well. As um as Anne Marie Slaughter said
3: about Hillary Clinton, that you know what? When something bad is going on, the thing about Hillary is when when a, a decision that you make, um, if you make it or not, it could be bad either way. Well, then she would just rather be caught trying. And, and they certainly at the time you go back and look at the Libya war. Boy, if any three ladies ever thought they knew what they were doing, it was Hillary, Samantha Power and Susan
1: Rice during that time.
3: You couldn't get more yeah. certain than that,
1: you know. So, so, so I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, we, we're talking you know, that you're talking about basically how. Uh, these wars are sold, you know, to, you know, New York Times readers, you know, in, in, this, in this Samantha Power uh, duty to protect, we're going to spread democracy sort of way. But I think a, a really important point that uh, that you make uh, during the debate uh, that you did with Bill Kristol is that uh, that's, you know, not, I mean, in some ways there's overlap, but it's not at all uh, how it was sold uh, to uh, the, uh, the Republican base. So, Jake, this is uh, clip uh, clip number five.
3: A guy who built his political capital, proclaiming on talk radio that Obama was a secret pro-terrorist Muslim from Kenya. In other words, your nemesis, Trump, was exploiting your movement's previous cultivation of this sort of illiberal sentiment among Republican voters back when it was still useful to your ends, building support for the wars. Now that the anti-Muslim chauvinism of the American right is no longer useful, you claim the right itself is now the greatest threat to democracy. If so, this is the nationalist movement the neoconservatives have done so much to cultivate and promote. For Bin Laden and his friends were few, but would-be enemies who happened to be Muslim were many. So Bush and the neocons supported the worst sort of right-wing populist nationalism in America, especially with their wink and nod approach to the Muslim-hating hacks on AM Talk Radio. It was central to Karl Rove's plan for his permanent Republican majority. That was a big part of why my opponent was so determined to bring Sarah Palin on board with John McCain in 2008. She could get the Rubes excited and and afraid and 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 convince them to continue to support the McCainian neoconservative doctrines behind the long war in the Middle East. Yeah, And you know, the next line, I blew the next line too, because the next line I said, and that's why your friend Frank Gaffney drummed up all this thing about the mosque in New York City. But mm-hmm. you know what? I, I should have double checked and Googled it, Ben, because as soon as I came home, I looked again and Bill Crystal himself was really big <laughs> on that, was huge on that, which for people who don't know, this is in
1: 2000, I think, 10. Where yeah, yeah, the, it, the this, this, this so-called Ground Zero Mosque, which was actually, that's right. which was actually a community center that was like, yeah it was within it was a, few- a Sufi mosque
3: of first of all which are like you know the hippies of the muslim world and it was like 4 blocks away which is
1: yeah, I mean, I mean, in, I mean in that, like, you're gonna say, yeah, so it's, it's within like a few blocks, but then, like, so are hundreds of businesses and you That's know right. like, and buildings yeah. there. Uh, you know, there are strip clubs, there are like tons of things. But what they if, told the people, they're on Ground Zero. You know, yeah. that would that would be included. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the
3: propaganda was that they're building this mosque essentially at Ground Zero, and it symbolizes the Muslim terrorist enemies' triumph over the American people. Like they won the war; they've conquered us. They're coming for you and your family next. And they pass at the same time all that through, I don't know, maybe like 20 state legislatures or maybe more. They got and it was the the Sharia law bills. Yeah, the Sharia law bills. The problem with the 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 storyline that all of the Muslim world is this one big Islamo fascist caliphate that's unified and headed this way is that that just is not true. Right. And, And rather than being kind of the, the vanguard edge of the coming Muslim wave and the rising Islamic civilization conquering America, September 11th was a, was a last gasp. Hail Mary passed by this tiny little group of bandits to see if they could provoke the superpower into, you know, mm-hmm. blundering into turning the whole Middle East over, speaking of radicalism. Um, and it worked because the Americans, of course, the special interests, Uh, had an interest in, you know, carrying that same narrative forward when the truth of the matter was they're not coming. And that was why the FBI had to frame 250 or 300, you know, idiots into saying they loved Osama so that they could go, you know, parade them on TV and make it seem like there was a terrorist menace here. That's why they had to pass all these anti-Sharia bills is because otherwise there's nothing going on. It's like that Bill Hicks joke where you watch CNN and they drive you crazy. War, famine, death, AIDS, the coming Muslim takeover, whatever. And then you look out your window and he does this great imitation of a bird chirping that I can't do. But you look out your window and things are pretty nice. <laughs> it doesn't really yeah, mean, yeah. yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So like man, it's been a while since september 11th and then we got the failed shoe bomber and we got the failed underpants bomber and we got the failed subway bomber and we got the failed brooklyn bridge cutting torch guy and we got what do we got right it no no I, years- mean, I mean
1: in, in a great many of these cases i mean like you actually look at the uh, court documents and it was like yeah we spent you know we we found this like lonely mentally ill young muslim man and we spent like a year and a half giving him the hard sell to join our fake terrorist cell and finally he said yes and we clapped on the handcuffs uh that's 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 really defending us against a very imminent threat i mean i guess the one thing i would put there's a great book
3: about that by the way called the terror factory by trevor aronson and he is the world's expert on that there's more than 300 of these entrapment cases now
1: so so we saw earlier you were rattling off all the um all of the authoritarian regimes that the United States uh, supports and does not uh, advocate, Uh, you know, uh, regime change in uh, like Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And you rattled off a bunch of, uh, of, of coups. uh, And you, you mentioned in particular uh, Suharto in, in, in Indonesia, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, who, who committed, you know, the worst genocide since, you know, World War II, at least at one point, and maybe it's been surpassed since then in, uh, in East Timor, and I wanna watch Crystal's response to this. Uh, so this is uh, number four in the uh, the list of clips. I'm
3: mean, gonna have a comment on a discourse that you know trivializes the Holocaust by saying the United States has conducted Holocaust that attacks that, that demeans the United States in really a grotesque way. If we made mistakes, did we give, as you say, green lights or yellow lights when we shouldn't have? That could quite well that could be. Talk to people from East Timor though, talk to people from Bangladesh. Do they want the US to just withdraw? and leave them, leave them to the mercies of their neighbors or would they prefer for the U.S. to have done more and to be doing more, and as we have done more since, incidentally, uh, the Pakistan and Bangl- Bangladesh split off from Pakistan, uh, doing more to keep the peace there. Talk to people who care about liberty around the world. They understand that for all the mistakes we make uh, and that we are important to them, to their peace, to their prosperity, to their liberty. People of all colors, I would say, all ethnicities, all religions, I, we should do that. We should go to East Timor and ask them whether they like the Americans,
1: whether yeah, they're glad it, we're
3: around supporting the government of Indonesia. I wonder what the people of West Papua think. You know?
1: Yeah. Oh wait, I know
3: what they think.
1: <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. Stop well, bleeding. Well, yeah. Well, of course, every actual opinion poll uh, in you know in the Middle East, you know, shows that uh, you know that most people do not like uh, American uh, you know American you know involvement uh, there. I guess the I guess that, you know, the people who care about liberty, you know, whatever, whatever William Crystal means by that. uh, Yeah, I really
3: I really botched that. I I should have answered very specifically about that. I think I may have had this in my notes somewhere, too. There's so much unsaid. I wish I'd been able to say that. But there is a great book by the Gallup poll called What a Billion Muslims Really Think that came out in 2009. I think it was where they They went to Muslim countries from Morocco to the Philippines. They skipped the most dangerous war zones, but they went everywhere else and they talked to everybody. And everybody said they like Americans. They like white people. They don't mind Christianity. They like all of the evil, horrible, sinful depictions of adultery in in R-rated Hollywood movies. That's what they like about us is our debauchery. You know and and they wish that they could be free like us i i'm i may be overstating that last yeah, part yeah, a you it's, know it's, what it's, i mean but though
1: but i i don't i don't want to be free like us actually, they don't
3: resent us they yeah. resent our government
1: killing them it's as simple as that you yeah know? no exactly and and i think that like what really strikes me about that clip is that crystal is framing the issue about east timor as as whether you know it's like okay sure there are cases where you know we didn't do enough and it's like well Seems like a case where we did considerably too much, right? I mean, like like yeah. spending, you know, spending decades backing and arming and you know funding this 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 like grotesque dictatorship that was, uh you know, that was killing uh the the East Timorese. Uh, but but I think in Crystal's you know view of the world, uh the the only option, the only way bad things can happen, it's a little bit of a caricature, but I don't think that much of a caricature is that the United States isn't doing something, right? You know that they right. and. And the worst thing you could ever maybe say about something the United States does is that it was a mistake. Right? Like, you know, it's like 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 certainly not like a crime. You know, you know it's but fun, a mistake. Though,
3: it was, you know, by the end of the thing, of course, he said he was anti-war, and I think for the first time he said that we shouldn't have done Iraq War Two. Mm-hmm. And I know some of the others have said that in the past, but I think that was the first time he said that. That oh geez, knowing now that there weren't weapons, yeah, yeah, yeah. As who but could he also, have
1: figured it out in two thousand and two?
3: Right. But, you know, he also, yeah, and this is a guy who's been a hawk this entire, you know, century long so far. It's not like he stopped until that night. The the audience question was, well, can you name any successes? And I really should have been paying better attention at this point because I'm, like, looking at my notes and stuff. And instead of, like, really listening carefully, the question was, hey, Bill, can you tell us any interventions where it really worked out like you hoped? And he goes back to Bosnia in 94. And so what I did was because I'm Mr. Names and Dates boy over here instead of, you know, an actual thinking man of any kind. And so I go, oh, yeah, well, it was the American Ambassador Zimmerman that ruined the peace deal that caused the war that then the Dayton Accords were meant to solve. And all that intervention was meant to solve. But it was American intervention in the first place that scotched the original deal that they had struck, I guess, at Lisbon, which is right. And I kind of screwed up the details. Actually, there was a A guy from Bosnia was like, actually, it was this guy and that guy, not the other way around, and whatever. So I I screwed up the details there, but I was still right. But yeah, yeah. But what I should have said was, was, as Dave Smith pointed out to me later, was he just had to go back to
1: 1994.
3: (laughs) He couldn't invoke a single one of the interventions that he supported in our current era whatsoever, not even Kosovo. He won't even go back to 99 in Kosovo, much (laughs) less Iraq War II. 20 years in afghanistan libya syria yemen the entire what about all the color-coded revolutions and overthrowing all the governments in russia's near abroad he can't stand by any of this
2: no, he can't stand by yeah. any of
3: this and that's the point i missed i'm going off i'm like because in 1994 i read one time that blah blah you know totally missed the major point that he is essentially completely surrendering there completely you know the america's worst hawk Saying none of it was worth it at all, not any of it at all.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, like, just to put a sharp point on that, I mean, he's like the the war he's going back to Bosnia is committed, you know, before you know he and his associates like had the most influence, right? I mean that that's that was that was like the the Clinton that was under Bill Clinton, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, that's a really good point. Uh, but the. Uh, but I, I mean I guess this is something, you know, maybe we could end with like your comment on this, um, that that I find really infuriating, not just about Bill Crystal, but I think in general, like American, you know, media and political discourse about stuff like this, you know, you mentioned Samantha Powers earlier, you know, she's sort of the, you know, liberal version of it, you know, that they that discussions about um about like horrible things happening in other parts of the world uh that um you know which you know whatever i mean sometimes are caused by u.s policy as you pointed out many times the debate sometimes they aren't but the discussions about horrible things happening elsewhere in the world are always framed as well you do you do something or you do nothing and uh the only thing that ever counts is doing something is like bombing or invading or you know having a having a military occupation uh at the you know very least, sending some special forces—it's only military intervention that will ever counts as uh, as mm-hmm. as doing anything, right? Like like it, like it seems like I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm I'm just a uh, uh, you know big softy on this, but it seems like you know I don't know. Like if if people are fleeing terrible situations, you know a um, you know you could bomb their country and um, and you know install you know a you know install a U.S. friendly government and you know quite often create more instability. That's going to make the situation worse over time. Uh, Like that is one form of doing something, but another form of doing something is you could just let the people who are fleeing from that situation come to the United States, you know, that's as, as refugees, but that never quite seems to count as doing something.
3: Yeah. Well, and the thing is too, is you stop creating the refugees. Like we talked about with Honduras. I mean, if you go back to the refugee crisis of 2015 and 16 here, Literally, they were mm-hmm. fleeing Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, mm-hmm. Libya, Syria, and Yemen. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh these were and Somalia, if they could. These were all countries that America had been bombing. Now there were some economic migrants from sub-Saharan Africa who he could still blame on the war in Libya because Gaddafi was keeping them from all trying to, you know, drown trying to get to Italy and all of that. So he was the cork on that bottle that they opened there. So, they weren't directly refugees from America's wars. Although really the Libya, some of them may have been because the Libya war spread down into Mali and Niger and Chad and Burkina Faso and Sierra Leone and all that, um, you know, almost directly after, you know, by 2012 and 13, uh, it had spread into Mali and into Western Africa. So many of those people were, were actually fleeing the results of the Libyan war as well. Some of them were just economic migrants, but again, the Libyan war, uh, you know, Uh, Yeah. Most of them were coming from countries we were bombing. They were literally coming from the countries we were bombing that whole time. And so this is really what led to the end of the American empire. I mean, the, the project, um, I think it was Gary North wrote that, ha, David Rockefeller lived to see Brexit. You know, it was already, he died at 99 or something, Mm. but it was already coming apart and right wingers were elected to the European parliament. Um, you know, in in large measures, and they were elected in and almost elected in all kinds of elections. And, you know, the nationalists almost came to power in France. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, and all this, you know, severe move to the right and against the entire organization of the European Union, which is, of course, an extension of the American imperial project.
1: I, I think it is really revealing about, you know, the America's role in the world, you know, in the time that you know we've we've had what bill crystal calls benevolent hegemony uh that they that like yeah letting it you know letting in refugees doesn't count as doing something just cutting off the supply of arms uh to uh to to bad actors doesn't count as doing something uh you know diplomacy doesn't even count as doing something right it's it's only you know it's right. it's, it's it's like are you indifferent to this or do you want to or do you want to drop more bombs right i mean that, that's the way that it's it's always framed
3: you know there's a guy from uh, cato uh, from a long time ago i guess he's around again now or something justin logan is his name and mm-hmm. he wrote this essay way back when called the fallacy of 39 or was it 38 mm-hmm. i think 39 and it's about you know how everybody is neville chamberlain yeah, and everybody yeah. <laughs> else is hitler and so you know the only thing that anyone can ever do is bow down and scrape before Hitler, the worst dictator who ever lived and worst warmonger who ever lived. And then all anyone else can do is point and mock, point at and mock that person and ridicule that person for always being an appeaser. And that was one of the things that I was trying to use against crystal too, is that, you know, I'm the one supposedly diminishing the Holocaust by saying factually that America's killed a Holocaust worth of civilians in the not during World War II, but in the time since World War II, um, and he says, "Oh, that's trivializing the Holocaust." Well, but they're the ones who called even David Koresh is Hitler, Manuel yeah, Noriega is Hitler. Yeah, yeah. So is Hitler, Slobodan Milosevic as Hitler, right. yeah, and and Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein. I mean, I remember I was fifteen, but I still remember that they called him Adolf Hitler and said, obviously, Kuwait is first. And then he's going to move on Saudi Arabia and then the world. Ben, he's going to conquer the world because he's Hitler and he'll settle for nothing less than conquering the world. And by the way, did we mention he's got the fourth largest army in the world? And apparently he could be in Berlin by next Sunday if we don't stop him at Riyadh where he wasn't even going to Riyadh. They had to lie and pretend that he was preparing to invade Saudi. They knew he wasn't gonna invade Saudi. He he won a coup de main in a day and a half in Kuwait. He, didn't, he yeah. wasn't trying to get into a war and get obliterated. They were lying and they do it all the time. Everybody's Adolf Hitler. And yet if everybody's Adolf Hitler, what does that make Adolf Hitler? yeah right, right? He's, he's not he's not you that know?
1: special and, and like you know it's its you can't really say this is this unique evil you know obviously as 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 you know people can tell from anything you said you know you're you're a libertarian we can have many disagreements about economics and covid and other things but uh but i really appreciate you saying these things to uh to build crystal's face uh that that is uh that is a mitzvah uh so uh that you know, uh, so this was this was great. Uh, I'm, I'm glad I watched the debate. I'm glad you came on here to talk about it. Thanks, Scott. Cool.
3: Thanks very much. Appreciate it.
1: All right, uh, that was uh, Scott Horden of Antiwar.com. You should check out his debate uh, with uh, with Bill Kristol about America's forever wars around the world. Uh, but now uh, we are going to have our very own producer, uh, Jake Appet, uh, who is going to do his still, I believe, unnamed labor segment
0: for today's segment? Uh, I wanted to talk about something that I think uh, we usually talk about stuff that, like, is pretty depressing, right? So we want to <laughs> talk about one of the best uh, developments of last year, which is that uh, Starbucks workers uh, around the country are starting to fight back, and they're not just fighting back, but they're, you know, they're building a a structure to last, right? And that there's kind of the difference between doing. Uh, workplace action versus uh, building a union, right? Is that that union mm-hmm. could actually, it could take that anger and and translate it into real gains. So uh, so we're talking about the uh, victory in, uh, in Starbucks today, and I'm going to try to give you a little perspective as a union organizer, but hopefully, uh, you know, with these segments, I can give you like a little flavor of uh, what it's like doing a, a union drive. Uh, so first of all, in terms of really brief background, what's going on with Starbucks, There was a union victory uh, in Elmwood, New York, which I think is uh, just outside of Buffalo. So that was the first uh, Starbucks that won. And uh, this video, uh, I kind of rewatch it uh, whenever I want to pick me up. This is a video of of the workers finding out uh, the results of their vote. Yeah, so I think that could be pretty good motivation for like how it feels to actually win a union vote. Um, And I think, you know, part of why it feels that good is because of how fucking hard the company is going to fight to make sure that that you don't win. You know, it's like they're going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a store that's filled with what, like maybe 10 to 15 employees at most. And the good news coming out of literally just today, which we didn't plan the labor segment today for that reason is that another uh, Starbucks in Buffalo has, uh, in Genesee Street, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, has uh, voted to unionize, and they won their election. So that's really awesome. And there's also been stores in Cleveland recently and Boston a little bit before that, Starbucks stores, that have voted to unionize. So if you work at Starbucks and you're watching this show, uh, I encourage you to uh, unionize your store. Um, but, you know, I think part of being a labor organizer is we try to get we do a process called inoculation as part of union organizing. And it, OK, Andy says it's Tennessee, Genesee. He knows much more about upstate than I do. But anyway, so we do a process called inoculation, which for these times is uh, very apt. Right. Which is I don't think that the mRNA uh, vaccines work this way. but Basically, inoculation is you give, uh, you know, you give the worker a little bit of the virus which in this case is what is the company going to do to try to beat back the union um and so that you know you, you build up antibodies metaphorical antibodies so that when it comes you know you're, you're not uh you're not taken off guard uh so we don't have that much time today but i want to very quickly play uh a video from this guy who wrote this book called confessions of a union buster and basically there's these people that, that will never call themselves union busters, but that's really what their job job is. They call themselves like HR reps. And uh, I didn't like edit this video, so excuse the corny music, but he talks a little bit about the psychology behind busting a union drive. I
2: conducted in excess of 200, almost 250 anti-union campaigns. And during that same period, I lost only five. I never called myself a union buster. And most union busters today, unless they're in private circles, don't call themselves union busters they call themselves labor relations consultants employee relations consultants human resource consultants any benign label they can give themselves so a union buster without the atmosphere or climate of fear is like working without one leg and one arm i mean fear is essential fear is like caviar lobster and filet mignon
0: you know it makes it uh you know, pretty nakedly clear uh kind of the disgusting lengths that, that this industry would go to. Uh so going back to Starbucks, uh just to kind of wrap this up, I think uh Uh, I actually saw uh, via our friends at the uh, majority report Um, they have. So part of the the anti-union drive, right, is they're going to have these captive audience meetings where they're mandatory meetings where they try to convince you to join the union. Maybe part of why Starbucks wasn't able to beat back the union drive is because they brought in Howard Schultz for their captive audience meeting, which isn't a good idea because they should bring an expert like this guy. And he fucking sucked at it. uh, And he made the weirdest analogy ever for why you shouldn't unionize.
2: Three Starbucks franchises in Buffalo that are attempting to unionize and uh, in and around Buffalo. And this is obviously a terror for management in terms of the idea that like, wait a second, could this happen all around the country? So Howard Schultz uh, flew in. Uh, When you look at what he's going to be talking about here, It really is, um, it really is amazing. That when people in Germany and in Poland were sent to the concentration camps, they were thrown into rail cars, and sometimes the journey was eight hours, 10 hours, 15 hours, no light, no, no water, no food. And when they arrived at the camps, the rail cars were slammed open you can hear that metal door just right against the cold weather men were separated from women and women were separated from children and one person for every six was given a blanket one blanket for every six people and the person who got the blanket had to decide what to do with this blanket that i have for myself and not everyone but most people most people shared their blanket with five other people. And the rabbi says to me, take your blanket and go share it with five other people. And so much of that story is threaded into what we have tried to do at Starbucks, is Uh share our blanket.
0: Yeah, so you know, a uh, billionaire owner of Starbucks that once considered a egotistical run for president is the prototypical example of someone who wants to share his blanket and not, you know, maybe having solidarity with your coworkers uh forming a union uh in my book, uh and you know we could get Ben's opinion on this, but that seems like a a greater example of of whatever sharing your 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 blanket means, but uh, I think it's really inspiring that a bunch of starbucks uh stores are starting to go union i from firsthand experience know how hard it is to uh to you know to organize uh individual shops that are really small so it takes a lot of courage Uh, and as long as they're ready i think that we're going to see uh more victories so yeah that's it for uh the yet to be named uh labor segment ben
1: it's kind of interesting, actually, that the tie-in at the end of the uh, the segment, um, you know, with uh, the interview with Scott Horton, uh, he was he was talking about how, um, you know, when he says, you know, these wars, you know, killed, you know, this this like, genocidal number of people, and Bill Crystal says, "Oh, you're trivializing the Holocaust." He points out, it's "Like, no, we, you know, but like, y- you guys are trivializing the Holocaust because you compare everyone to Hitler, you know, Manuel Noriega is Hitler, Saddam Hussein is Hitler, whatever, you know. It's like, but." And it's like, and I, and I do agree that I mean, like, that's kind of ridiculous, like, because if Hitler is this unique evil, everybody can't be Hitler, right? Like, if, if you you know, like, it's, is not that special if everybody's Hitler, but as ridiculous it is, as it is to compare Manuel Norieger, whoever to Hitler, man, uh, that was a much worse Holocaust analogy.
0: <laughs> you know, in my book, invoking the Holocaust to try to beat back workers who are, you know, probably fighting for like a dollar an hour raise or something like that is probably one of the most disgusting things you can do. So I'm glad that they won.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm also not surprised that wasn't a convincing pitch. In <laughs> You know, this is uh, Yeah, they
0: need they need that guy from the, the Union Buster Confesses, like he knows how to do it. You know, there's a whole script. He was just free, you know, he was freestyling out there and it didn't work. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. No, this is why you need a. this is why you need notes. You just shouldn't try to wig it, you know, or <laughs> else or else you're like, hey, you guys who want to organize, you can get a dollar extra for making coffee. You know, what you're doing is a lot like when Hitler invaded Poland and then, you know, you set up these concentration camps and people had to share the blankets. Or I, I, I got lost at a certain <laughs> point of the analogy, but uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking that he... You know maybe he couldn't have done better, but you know, certainly if he brought in a pro that could have done better, all right. Uh, that's that's pretty amazing. Uh, I think you're gonna have a hard time topping that next week, but uh, but this was fantastic. Uh, excited about the segment. We met at the very beginning of the show. Uh, we kind of got caught up talking about the Dick Cheney thing, and we didn't get to it. Maybe we'll do it uh, next episode, which is not going to be next week because I'm going to be getting back from a conference next Monday. Uh, we're going to show a clip of, of uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, from you know, the the 80s to kind of show how his foreign policy of use had changed you know what christopher hitchens was was known for even though a lot of it uh, a lot of the book christopher hitchens what he got right how he went wrong and why he still matters see how smoothly i did that uh <laughs> is is about politics is about his you know of course about you know his uh, you know his writing about people like henry kissinger and you know bill clinton uh it's it's about um the evolution in obviously a see above interview with Scott Horton. What I see as the wrong direction of foreign policy, uh, but you know, of course, inevitably because that is a subject we spent a lot of time on. Some of it is on you know his, his debates about religion, uh, and um, and a little bit of it. Uh, this this will bring us to uh, to the subject for uh, for the philosophy segment. When? <laughs> uh, <laughs> a little bit of it is is about another book about Hitchens written by this guy Larry Taunton. The uh, Faith of Christopher Hitchens, The Restless Soul of the World's Most Notorious Atheist, uh by Larry Allen Taunton. And uh Larry Taunton is this evangelical who Hitchens would do debates with, but you know, he also you know became friends with. And it's it's a really weird book. Uh I one thing I definitely whatever else I got out of it, I got out of it that Larry Taunton is not a very good friend, uh, because uh he's 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 writing about his 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 dead friend and he's like suggesting that uh I don't actually think he was making anything up. Some people did say that it's like, oh, these were all unverifiable conversations, whatever. I actually don't think that. I think that Taunton was just interpreting what Hitchin said to him in kind of dumb ways. Uh and you know so because he's
4: not a bad friend, just a dummy.
1: Well dummy also bad friend though, because he's uh, <laughs> why not both <laughs> exactly why not both? Because he's uh 'cause cause a lot of the book is about suggesting that uh that you know Hitchens uh was was actually you know wavering in his atheism, you know, towards uh towards the end. Uh and uh and that uh that that actually maybe you know he was you know he was privately coming around and and the evidence is is super duper weak, right? So uh one of the pieces of evidence uh has to do with um with this guy, uh, let's, uh, so let's the, uh, do, I think I gave this to you a second, Jake, but it's, the, it's from earlier in the, uh, the video.
5: Do we have the clip? Consider by analogy, uh, the concept of physical health. I mean, the- oh,
1: sorry, it's the other one,
5: my bad. I- now it's often said that science cannot give us a foundation for morality and human values because science deals with facts, and facts and values seem to belong to different spheres. It's often thought that there's no description of the way the world is that can tell us how the world ought to be. But I think this is quite clearly untrue. But values are a certain kind of fact. They are facts about the well-being of conscious creatures. Why is it that we don't have ethical obligations toward rocks? Why is it?
1: why is it yeah that's what i'm asking you uh no <laughs> so uh so in the book uh taunton mentions a conversation uh you know with with hitchens he actually mentions two that are relevant here uh one uh where hitchens said that he disagreed with uh with peter singer for who you know they because he he couldn't believe that a piglet had the same moral status as a human child uh and uh and and another is uh when he uh you know he said that he thought that sam harris's moral theory which as you see from that clip is basically just you know it's utilitarianism that he didn't agree with that that you know that he thought that 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 wasn't really you know that wasn't a convincing moral theory
4: wait 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 so the idea is yeah that if you're not a utilitarian your morals must come from some sort of divine command, God related thing. Yes. Well, that seems obviously true. Yeah. Okay, cool. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, by the the law of disjunctive syllogism, you know, one or the other, not one, therefore the other, you know, so, so what are you going to do there? Although I've clearly been screwing up because I've been telling my, my ethics students about, All these other theories that aren't utilitarian and have nothing to do with God.
1: So, yeah. Oops. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, it's a really weird thing that's like, what you like, well, you can't really be an atheist if you're a utilitarian, because if you're not a utilitarian, because like that's, those are the choices, right? It's divine commands or utilitarianism. (laughs) Whereas, um,
4: and here my students are do we have to learn any more theories and I'm like no because we gotta learn all these theories about God because you might not want to be a utilitarian <laughs> so let's talk about God some more I mean we do cover in in some of my ethics classes I I don't do it anymore but we have covered divine command theory in the past which does have to do with God
1: sure but uh
4: that's the only one yeah and yes I what y'all are over there? Yes, Cowboys fans are born, not made. I, as a child, I you know sat in front of the TV every Sunday or Monday night with my parents and my grandparents, and we watched the Cowboys. So yeah, I see y'all. I I, I see y'all. <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So the uh-
4: Rock Lives Matter. <laughs>
1: yeah um so so you might think yeah so of course you know you might spend a day in, in ethics class talking about divine command theory probably most of that day I spent talking about the euthyphro dilemma although this is i should say this is pre uh this is pre-october 2021 when the, the euthyphro dilemma was solved
4: right <laughs> you it's know the no point in talking about it anymore
1: yeah charlie charlie kirk uh has the decisive solution which is which is
4: both and you should watch that that song <laughs> the video with the song did you tell them about the song you yeah. them about the song
1: yeah yeah the uh, ryan
4: lake is in the video for the song
1: Hannah a hoffman music is the as the youtube channel we actually did on a previous episode show a little bit of that song and All i right, told people yeah. to go you know go give her the views you know instead of uh <laughs> i watching the whole thing here um but uh but yeah it's it seems like um besides uh, thinking that divine commands are, you know, the foundation of morality and being a utilitarian, just saying whatever maximizes happiness and minimizes suffering is the right thing no matter what. You know, you might think there's also
4: Kant. has he never heard of Kant? For real. Has he never <laughs> heard of Aristotle? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, I, I think it's entirely possible that Larry Taunton has not heard of, of, of Contra Aristotle, or at least has not heard about them in enough detail to know what their ethical <laughs> views were. Uh so uh but, but I'm also interested uh in Sam Harris's reason for being a utilitarian because of course Sam Harris credit where credit is due. Uh I, I did uh no, no, no. What, what, no. what are you even reacting Tug to?
4: person. No. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do that here. <laughs> we'll Smushy face dog.
1: Sam Harris. Cod. Be serious. <laughs> uh,
4: uh
1: yeah. So to give uh give credit where credit's due. Uh and you know, we, we we do uh we do give Sam Harris a hard time in the show. We are going to continue to do so in the next few minutes. But uh you know and, and i have you know joked in the past uh that uh when i say a while ago that the um the median example of a really hardcore uh gta fan is a 29 year old graduate student whose girlfriend is sick of hearing about how dumb sam harris is uh but uh the uh uh to give credit to sam harris he's not going to make an argument for utilitarianism quite as foolish as anything based on like what Larry Taunton is assuming, right? I mean, Sam Harris does know that there have been people who aren't, you know, divine command or utilitarians who've existed. So uh, he gives uh, so so he gives a bunch of other arguments and he thinks in some strange way that you can derive utilitarian morality from science. And uh, and this is this is very confusing. It, it's not obvious at all what the connection's supposed to be. We were talking about this a little bit last week. Uh, But uh, since then, we have discovered a clip of Sam Harris uh, explaining why it's not unreasonable to think that science can tell us what's morally right and wrong by considering an analogy.
5: Consider analogy, uh, the concept of physical health. The the concept of physical health is undefined as we just heard from Michael Spector. It it has changed over the years. When, When this statue was carved, the, the average life expectancy was probably 30, it's now around 80 in the developed world. There may come a time when we meddle with our genomes in such a way that, that not being able to run a marathon at age 200 will be considered a profound disability. You know, People send you donations when you're in that condition. <laughs> Notice that the, the fact that the concept of health is open, genuinely open, for revision does not make it vacuous. Okay, the, the the distinction between a healthy person and a dead one is about as clear and consequential as any we make in science all right
1: uh thank you thank you Yoda 7104 for the uh, for the super chat and i'm, I'm, I'm sorry for misrepresenting you uh, but uh, says it's 27 and COVID dating is rough uh we, we also got one earlier uh for, about somebody saying that they're no longer 29 in grad school i, I know there's a very diverse you know group of people who watch the show that I'm not you know,
4: in grad school but I am 29
1: <laughs> so, <yeah>. so <laughs> in any case uh so uh silver Harlow says you wouldn't like the consequences of starting cop puns on here
4: what up silver uh,
1: so uh so what do we what do we think about that analogy so uh this I mean I kind of referred to this last week but in a way that was like it kind yeah, of
4: we oui well i think we referred to this last week
1: we well, well i think the particular sentence might have come out of my mouth but sure in our discussion last week uh, you know this this was referred to uh, and and we or perhaps i were too were too quick maybe in, uh, in making the point uh, and and i think it is worth slowing down and making it a little bit greater detail so as far as i can tell harris's point goes something like this: that health is a science, but uh, health is normative. That you know, where 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 there's like value judgments about healthy and unhealthy. Uh, so there's really no you know. So even though science is about facts, that doesn't mean that you know it's a separate sphere from from values. So what do we think about this argument?
4: Uh so health. Is health itself a science?
1: See, this is interesting because 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 uh, I was talking earlier today to uh, Lee Phillips, uh, and and I think he had a, a good point about this, right? Which is, you could say, well, health is applied biology, uh, but it's like applied to try to achieve a certain goal, right? That it's it's like uh, engineering is applied physics, that kind of thing. Uh, but you know, but the the point is that the goal. You know, of course, nobody denies that once you've figured out what your goals are, you know, what goals you care about, then, like, non-moral facts can help you figure out how to achieve those goals. Like, that's completely uncontroversial, right? The David Hume, who, you know, was the first person who was making a big deal the fact value thing, uh, certainly didn't deny that. <laughs> Made many moral arguments that included factual premises. Uh,
4: I would think that the more you knew, the better you would be at achieving your goals right even if those goals were normative goals
1: yeah exactly so so you might think okay so there's a certain normative hell you know there's a certain sense maybe in which health is sure we're applying biology to meet normative goals or for that matter like when Ingalls uses the phrase you know scientific socialism i don't think you know he's suggesting that science somehow tells you science <laughs> that you should you know that you should want socialism i think he's saying in that same sort of application sense, you can take what you learn from the social science uh, to uh, in in order to understand how capitalism works. Now you can get beyond it whatever. And whatever you think about that, right? Like the, the science isn't coming in at the normative part, the, what you should do part it's, it's coming in, in the, how do you achieve it? Right. So um, this is, you know, this is the point, you know, last week uh we mentioned uh you know con- i was here last yes week. you were here but you, not every individual sentence you know was <laughs> one that you spoke well the good ones were. <laughs> for example i wouldn't want anyone to say remember when ben and jen said roll tide you know <laughs> <laughs> so uh,
4: yeah the good sentences are spoken by me <laughs> uh
1: so uh, So, you know, but when cod to the groundwork for medicine, some morals makes the point that the same medical knowledge that can, you know, help a doctor save somebody might also help them to, you know, kill, kill them in a way that nobody would ever find out. Um, And, uh, and, you know, the medical science, right, the actual like applied biology that you're using to try to achieve health is not, uh, is not going to, uh, uh, is not going to, to tell you. You know the uh, the answer uh, to uh, to that. Uh, You know, like it's not going to tell you which goals you should have. Nope. Just like you know, science. Sure, science could tell us all sort. You know, especially if we're being expansive about our use of the word science, we're including the social sciences. (laughs) Always say it that way. (laughs) 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 Could could certainly tell us things about how to achieve moral goals, just the same way it could tell us how to achieve uh, how to achieve. how to achieve, uh, health goals. Right. You know, but, uh, but it, it, that doesn't mean that it can tell you which goals you should, you should care about, like that you should, you know, is it important that people are healthy enough for long enough that they can run marathons when they're 200 years old, uh, in uh, in the, in the future or, or should we not bother with that? Because, you know, resources that could be spent to try to extend life that long in the future could be, you know, better spent on uh, on something uh, on something else. Uh, yes, definitely. When your dad says you still have your health, you can <laughs> you can just. Oh no, I disagree with the normative premise. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that this is, um, and this and this gets us back to that tweet that we were talking about last time, and I think might be able to sort of more clearly you know, shed light on what's wrong with it, right? So remember, this was it. Questions. Question for the fans of the is-ought impasse in ethics, by which he just means questions for people who think that there really is an is-ought gap, that you can't get your, your normative goals just from the non-moral facts. Why don't we have a similar problem with reasoning itself? Why aren't we tempted to worry, for example, the fact that A is bigger than B doesn't allow us to say that we ought to believe that A is is bigger than B. Uh, and I spent probably way too much time thinking about what, what he's trying to say here. Uh, and and um, Did you
4: spend any time thinking about what he was trying to say? Yes. That's too much. <laughs> oh.
1: So, uh, so, so as far as I could tell, the idea is something like this. You, know, you think about, um uh think about this little series of of comic panels that uh, that Andy drew for us uh so first panel if you do such and such you won't live a long life
4: question mark
1: you should or i guess it should be shouldn't do such and such uh so the point yeah, i i think you know assuming that we you know we changed it so the second one was shouldn't right which would presumably be the inference that uh, that you're supposed to uh make uh, the jump from the first panel to the third panel, Harris seems to be saying, this is fine, right? If you know that uh, if you do such and such, you won't live a long life, you know, then you can conclude that you should, you you know, that you shouldn't do that thing that, you know, that if you do it, you won't live a long life. Or, you know, if you know that doing such and such means that you will long live a long life, then you should do that thing. Uh, but
4: what if I don't want to live a long life? Yeah, Isn't go. that my business? <laughs> Who is that to say that that that's right or wrong? Is that a moral issue?
1: Yeah, it's not moral. I think that the I think that Harris's idea is that uh, health, you know, you say such and such is healthy, such and such is unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, you know, that's, you know, I think he's taking that as. um a normative concept or, the, or at the very least even if it's not normative right like that i
4: don't feel that it is but that could just be me
1: yeah i don't know i mean I, I could i'm not super invested in either answer to that question right you know like i think probably usually uh when we have um when we say such and such is healthy or such and such is unhealthy there's usually some kind of implication floating around that you have a reason to do the healthy ones or a reason not to do the unhealthy ones. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I'm just not sure that that's a, a moral issue.
1: No, again, I don't think it's a moral issue. Right. You know, like, like, but I think it might be something like a concept of what a, you know, like the sort of physical aspect of a flourishing life or something that like, you know, that like you'll, you know, that, that this is better, even if it's not morally better, you know, it's like there's some respect in which it's better, but if you take it that way, yeah, the point still stands, right? You know that the premise one, uh, such and such is healthy. Conclusion: you should do such and such. Well, that seems like an okay inference, but that's just because we're leaving that question mark in between, right? Like in other words, that there's an implied premise two, which is um, which is that uh, you should do things that are healthy, mm-hmm. and you shouldn't do things that are unhealthy, mm-hmm. uh, and So similarly, uh, and yes, Andy points out, he didn't actually draw this, my mistake, he adapted a a pre-existing meme, but uh, he, uh, he says, you know, go back to his tweet, right? So here's the first premise, object A is bigger than object B.
4: Question mark.
1: Here's the conclusion. You should believe that object A is bigger than object B. So, yeah, we do go from premise one to that conclusion and you know there are various ways of nitpicking this you know that like about whether you always have to believe true things or whatever but like everybody would kind of understand what you meant if you say yeah you know why should you believe that one because it's true right but that's because that question mark right you know what we've got that implied second premise is uh you should believe true stuff and
4: which is not itself always true
1: yeah, right. So this is yeah, we talked about this a little bit last week, you know, that the very least, um, you know, yeah, I mean, like
4: it provides a reason for believing or for a reason why you should believe it, but there could also be overriding reasons.
1: Yeah, or or even like um I mean it could I mean like there are lots of true things you don't have evidence for. You might think if you're asserting that it's true, there's some implication, you know, like we can depict this forever. Uh, you know, certainly any version of you should believe true stuff that like holds universally would probably have to have a whole bunch of caveats in it. Like, uh, so we're
4: philosophers, we love,
1: caveats. yeah, exactly. Right? So, you know, because yeah, nobody's saying that you have an epistemic <laughs> obligation to go, we're around, gonna lawyer this to death, you know, spend every minute of the day forming true beliefs about every single individual, you we'll know, in blade of grass, you know, in the uh, in the backyard, uh, but. The idea that, in some sense, it's good to believe stuff that's true is relatively uncontroversial and un- relatively uninteresting. The same way, don't do stuff that'll shorten your life is a relatively uninteresting sort of norm of you know behavior. Uh, whether you know whether it's exactly a moral one or not, um, but when you take the sort of moral examples, especially you think about the kinds of conclusions that Sam Harris derives from his utilitarian morality, like he. You know, he'll say like, "Oh, you know, taking time bomb case." You know, you should clearly torture that guy. Um, and it, yeah, it seems like now premise one is tor- you know torturing terrorism suspects to get them to tell us where the bombs are will prevent more suffering than it causes.
4: Question mark.
1: Conclusion is we should torture terrorism suspects to get them to tell us where the bombs are, and it seems to me that this is very importantly unlike the previous two examples because um you know do things that are good for your health and you know will make you live longer try to believe true stuff and avoid believing false stuff you know these are like relatively uncontroversial
4: so torturing someone is going to help you live longer
1: no uh. <laughs> yeah. but
4: i may have gotten mixed up
1: you know what would go in the question mark right what would go in the implied second premise here would be um, it's always right to do things that will prevent more you know more suffering than they cause and that's a lot more controversial and interesting than try to you know pay attention to but here. if you
4: don't believe that then divine command theory is your choice of ethical theory.
1: Yeah that's what Larry Taunton thinks.
4: Uh, <laughs> See how it all comes back around.
1: The, what goes, the, you know, if you're going to fill in the blank for that question mark, uh, for, uh, you know, for the. Um...
4: I'm glad you let me read the question mark boxes. <laughs> that was really fun. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, what would fill, what would go in those blanks for uh, the, you know, the health case and the Believe True Stuff case? even with all the caveats that would have to go for believe true stuff to make that precisely accurate. Yeah. 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 You know, if you're an analytic philosopher and you want to lawyer this, you know, like I, granted. Right. But you know, the
4: Ben tells me that I love to lawyer stuff to death.
1: I I do, because she does. Uh, So, uh, you know, but the general idea that you should try to swim towards truth and away from falsity is not super controversial. Uh, And the the general idea that you should, you know, pay attention to your health is not super controversial. Uh, Whereas absolutely anything that leads to better consequences is therefore morally better is, you know, it's a lot, uh, lot more controversial. In fact, partially because of cases like this. So, uh, so we're going to be on the post game in like two minutes. I will see you there. Roll tide! All right, this was the last philosophy segment.
4: <laughs> uh, it, was, it was fun. Team Snoopy forever.
1: <laughs> Left his bed. <laughs>